So tell me about your new book. So You Will Own Nothing, as you probably know, is um, a, a phrase that comes out of the World Economic Forum, their 2030 projection, eight, eight predictions for 2030. And the number one pro uh, prediction is you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. And so when you first hear about this, being somebody like me, who's very common sense and spends a lot of time on social media and hears a lot of things that aren't really true, I'm kind of like, yeah, there's no way that this organization that is littered with the political elite and business elite and all these other powerful people are predicting the end of private property in like seven years. There must be some mistake. And you go and you look at the research, which, by the way, is not very difficult to do. And there it is out in the open. Um, you know, this this video uh, where the number one prediction is, as we, we said, you'll have nothing, you'll be happy. And then when you do more research, you note that the World Economic Forum actually likes to recycle and repackage ideas. So this has been around for quite some time. It uh, The video came out in 2018 and was shared by the WF on, on Twitter. But there was an article that predated that in 2016, where some of those concepts were, were coming out that I don't own anything and look at how great my life is. And then in 2017, they did a video that says, can you rent everything that you need in your life? And you're you know, kind of like a library where you're going to check out, I guess, everything that you need. And so this is an idea that they have been trying to seed in different ways. And as somebody who comes from um, the industry of helping people create wealth and opportunity, one of the things I know at the center is that the way that wealth is created is via ownership, very specifically ownership of assets that have the opportunity to at least maintain their value, but hopefully appreciate in value. So the idea that people are predicting that we're not going to have these wealth creation opportunities didn't really sit right with me. And then you go to their number two prediction, which is the U.S. will no longer be the world's superpower. <laughs> and you start getting into something that sounds like another conspiracy, a new world order, a new financial world order, which, again, if you go and you do the research, you will see people like our current president, Joe Biden, has talked about this. And it's on his remarks to the Business Roundtable in March of 2022 that talk about this are on the White House's website right now. So you can go see it. And he says very clearly, you know, there's going to be a, a new global uh, economic order, a, a new order overall. It happens every three to four generations. And then, of course, he says, you know, there will be a new world order out there and we've got to lead it. Now, I don't know who he thinks we are. He was talking to the, the business elite. I'm pretty sure that I'm not included in that we, and you probably aren't either. Um, but you Oh, I'm included. You are. Oh, well, congratulations on being part of the, the global elite. Uh, well, we can we can talk about that too and your plans. But you know, it was really clear to me because this 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 new sort of global financial order does happen on a regular basis. Our, our run is about 80 years old, and uh, before us, it was the British, and before the British, it was the Dutch. So these things happen throughout history. And all the people who are really smart and connected, it's pretty clear, are talking about these things. They're understanding these things. And as I dug deeper, it was really clear that they see these these shifts coming financially. And so what they're doing now is they're jockeying to come out on top and control every resource. Because, right, if you see a shift happen, you could just hope it works out for you. Or you could, if you're in a position of power, 
try to, to influence that. And in the process of that, if they own everything, you will own nothing. And how clever of them to try to get you to buy into that upfront and say that you will be happy about it. Because I'm pretty sure if I check my history, every time people haven't owned things, they were not only unfree, they were pretty unhappy. Right. That's the most alarming thing about it is not the notion even that we won't own anything. It's the notion that if we rent it, someone owns it because in order to rent something, someone else has to actually be the property owner. So who is it exactly that you discovered in your research is going to own everything? So there are different um, sort of sets of individuals that I've grouped into three buckets. Certainly, the Fed and the U.S. government are trying really hard to hold on to their positions of power and to, if, if it's not own things, at least set their friends up to own things so that they can keep that power position. And a lot of the things that are taking away um, your ability to create wealth and to have that ownership are certainly squarely com coming, the calls coming from inside the house, so to speak. Then there's sort of this broad range of what I call bad actors. And it's everybody from the World Economic Forum and the big business uh, elites and other NGOs that are working, again, to make sure the people who are connected with them come out on top. And then the third bucket, it just has to stand alone, is big tech. Because the way that big tech has evolved is really you know, not sort of in a capitalistic way. It's a very monopolistic or, or oligarchistic kind of way um, because there are only a handful of choices that you have in big tech for everything. And, you know, as you sort of alluded to, what they're looking to do is to take your life and the things that you have and to rent them back to you as a subscription or a service. And so ultimately, they are the ones who are seeking the rents and, and gaining the ownership and the benefit while you become the person that's just beholden to them and continually paying for that. So obviously, this would be a challenging battle for us if we had any one of those groups that we had to push back uh, against at one point in time. But right now, we have to push back on all of them. So it really makes it a you know, sort of all out financial war. And it's kind of weird if you think about it, because when you think about war in a historical context, it was always a country and those leaders and they dominate somebody else. They dominate another country and they seek their resources and their people's resources and they confiscate them. But in this case, you know, many of these entities are right here at home. So it's, you know, our own government and the people who are connected who are coming to take our resources. And so it takes on a little bit of a, a different flavor than maybe what we were used to. What is the source? This is something I've been struggling with because obviously I follow the World Economic Forum and everything that they say is exceedingly alarming to me. But what is the actual source of the World Economic Forum's power. I have a hard time seeing how it's more than a like a glorified think tank. It's a really good question. You know, certainly it started um by you know it was started by Klaus Schwab. Um oh, and, the guy. yeah but I mean if you couldn't if you're trying to cast a, a villain in a Bond movie you wouldn't come up with a, a more perfect casting. I mean it's just incredible. And and you when you look at him he, you know he looks like a 
crazy Yahoo. It's like amazing how he yeah. has been um, entrenched, uh, you know, in sort of in these areas. When he first started it, it was called the European Management Forum. And while his core ideas have always been the same, he's always been talking about stakeholders instead of shareholders. So right. that idea that some group of people can influence versus the people who actually own something. That idea has been core since the early 1970s. Things really evolved for him as sort of politics and, and geopolitical situations um, came to pass in the mid-70s. And so more political people started to get involved. And I think that you know, the reality is that it, it did kind of start out as this kind of networking scenario. But as he's tried to push these ideas and people have come together to, to share ideas, I think that as the global stakes have shifted, that has been sort of this the center piece of them trying to to carry water, um, you know, back into governments, back into the business realm. And I don't think that everybody who's involved actually knows what they're doing. I think that mm. if they see the benefits of going and connecting and having a boondoggle and being seen as part of some elite group. Um, and so even the people who are carrying back bad ideas, like ESG is a, is a huge one. A lot of the, the people I call the useful idiots, and to some extent, the profiteers either don't know what's going on or just trying to, to make some money off of it. And so I don't think there it's like the cabal where like, it's like they even know that like, we're part of this evil thing. We just know that things are changing. Here's a way for me to like angle in and to kind of get, get what I can. And, you know, it just kind of comes down to fundamental human nature of, you know, greed and power and not any sort of principles or even right. necessarily an intention behind it. So I could be wrong, but I did some research into Klaus Schwab and I'm sure you found that he's a sort of a notoriously difficult person to find any real background on. He seems to sort of have manifested out of, out of hell. <laughs> but when I looked into his dad, it seemed like his dad was seriously involved in Nazi research into nuclear weaponry. Uh, is that true or is that really a stretch? So um, to be honest, I've really stayed focused on the the kind of the financial aspects of what happened. Sure. And, and I haven't. What I'm getting at is, is Klaus Schwab a Nazi sympathizer. <laughs> That's what I'm getting I, at. And, and so the reality is I, I have heard similar things um, in terms of his father's background, but also I don't you know hold people accountable for what their family members believe in. And, you know, I'm Jewish, so this is obviously a very sensitive subject for me. Um, but he's certainly nuttier than a jar of peanut butter. He certainly has um, you know, done things to put himself in this position of power, and he has surrounded himself with the with the right people. I've also heard, and this is I'll just be upfront. This is complete speculation. I've not done the research on it, but that he was a protege of Henry Kissinger as well, and that he was part of the group. But Again, that it just being straightforward is just something that I've heard. I have not done the research on it because for me, what's happening and the plan to fight back is sort of my area of expertise versus, you know, how did he sort of come to be? But, I, you know, I, I, if you know James Lindsay, I bet he has the answer to that because he's done a, a deep dive there. So he would be a good a good resource to kind of find out more about this, how this crazy person um, came to pass. Yeah, it's really interesting how this seemingly inconsequential person has 
put himself in a position where annually he's shaking hands with the most powerful people in the world. And he doesn't seem to really have any resources. Well, I mean, so we all, we all pay for this. So this has become, you know, they have a $300 million US dollar equivalent budget. And the US both, you know, under the Trump administration, although they cut back, I think some of it and, you know, um, Obama and Biden, you know, we're paying millions of dollars a year to help fund him. And while he you know, wants to tell you how you, we need more equity and, you know, CEOs are paid too much, he also takes a salary um, that's reported to be 1 million Swiss francs, which is about equivalent on par with the US dollar right now. So million dollars a year, plus all whoever, who knows what else is going on in that power circle, plus this, you know, entity is funded. But I will say in terms of perseverance, you know, the fact that the, the same ideas that he's been pushing them since the early 1970s, I think 71, just the level of perseverance that I am going to make this particular set of ideas happen and let things grow out that, you know, come from this core thing of mine um, is pretty staggering. And so, you know, as we know, sometimes just perseverance and time allows you to to rise into those positions and connecting powerful people around you with you at the center also puts you in that position. But the, the crazy thing about them, and again, to try to take some of the conspiracy thing out of, of, of the discussion is when I'm looking into any of these kind of ideas and concepts, um, their name pops up over and over again, as by the way, does one of their allies, the United Nations. And when you see the same names pop up a couple times, you can dismiss that as coincidental. But when like every single time you look into something, they're near it, um, it, it, it kind of is hard to believe it's a coincidence. And you will also find that language like reshaping and transforming and rethinking anything. I mean, even food. Reset. Yeah, yeah, everything is in that same kind of language. So when you hear that pop up, this has happened many, many times, somebody says, oh, you know, there's this concept about reshaping this or reimagining or re, you know, I'm like, oh, is the WEF involved? And they're like, yeah, how did you know? It's like, because this is, this is their shtick. And um, unfortunately, I mean, you know, we're in a situation right now where the new CEO of Twitter was a, an executive yeah. chair. And the first language she comes out with is that she wants to help transform Twitter. And it's like, oh, come on, <laughs> you're not you're not helping yourself here. You know, this is this is not what people want to, to see that connection between that person and, and the World Economic Forum. Why do you think Elon picked her? Because he's been antagonistic toward the WEF, just generally speaking. I mean, this is a, a great debate. Trying to get into the mind of sure. Elon Musk is, you know, <laughs> it's good radio, <laughs> right? Yeah, that could be a, that could be a whole other thing. But my guess is, you know, sh he's obviously one of the first challenges that he had is turning off the advertiser advertising community, and certainly he overpaid for the business. It's one that bleeds a lot of money, and so it needs some good revenue sources. I don't think Twitter Blue was the runaway success that he imagined it would be, or at least as quickly. And this is, again, all speculation, sure. um, but just, you know, based being a, a business person, sort of my guess. So she kind of pitched, hey, I am a power broker in the advertising community, which she absolutely is. And she has all these connections. And I think there was sort of a thought like, 
it will look like there's an adult at the table for the advertisers who have left Twitter on mass to feel comfortable and she can kind of create that connection and drive that revenue piece. And he said, and again, that you know, that's kind of where she's going to be focused. She's not going to be focused as focused on product or whatever. But from that standpoint, this why not make her the head of advertising or the head of revenue? Why make her the the CEO? But I'm not Elon right. Musk, and obviously he's very successful. So you know, right. So does this whole "you will own nothing and be happy" mantra come out of, for lack of specific terms, a globalist agenda to seize ownership, or is it that they resign to the fact that the current financial system is not sustainable? And they know that people are just going to lose wealth generation to generation because of fractional reserve banking and fiat currency. And so they're just sort of prepping the masses. Are they doing it intentionally or is this actually sort of a proactive defense for the inevitable? So I think there is some elements of both. Um, and, you know, the the there are people who are bringing about the new financial world order, some of them intentionally and some of them unintentionally, but certainly um, you know, China and Russia are actively doing things like de-dollarizing and they really want to effect that change because they believe it's going to benefit them and it's going to um, take somebody like the United States down a peg. But I think a lot of it is just history. I mean, you've got the Fed and the government, as you mentioned, you know, the things that they have done with currency debasement um, and the, the eroding of purchasing power and the taking on of lots of debt, and it threatens their power structure. I mean, lots of debt and power are, are completely at odds with each other because they're sort of running out of ways to continue their expansion. And, uh, you know, it, it's at the end of the line. And so I think a, a lot of it is as you get late stage in the, the financial cycle, those same kinds of things happen. And so they are bringing it about in some ways unintentionally. And as all of this is happening, I think a lot of it is just that jockeying to come out on top and saying, you know, th this is something that we can do today that we wouldn't have been able to do, you know, 50 years ago because the financial foundation and situation was very different. But now that we're like nearing this period of, you know, potential chaos, we've got to make sure that we're prepared for that. I think the outlier uh, in all of this is big tech. And it's really interesting because if you think about the evolution of technology over time, it really has not only made our lives better, I think net-net, but also helped to create more broad wealth for people. Sure. And I think this latest iteration of technology where you have for you know, many things that have really become you know, basic infrastructure, just a few choices. You know, Apple and Alphabet have more than ninety-nine percent of the operating system control in the entire world. Not a lot of freedom, not a lot of choice there, not a lot of you know capitalism. Somebody being able to come in and compete, and you know, the operating systems on your phones, you know, kind of the the gateway to everything. So. I think that this last iteration of big tech has really shifted and has changed the opportunities to create wealth broadly and really consolidate that. And I think we need to look at that shift in a different way. 
which is, you know, somebody who is more free market oriented is, you know, an interesting different lens, I think, to, to put on something. How does this, if at all, tie into what's going on in Ukraine right now? So, you know, I'm not a geopolitical expert um, and I, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. Sure. I think that the reality of um, the shifting stakes and the shifting alliances certainly plays in here, giving you some very elegant response about exactly what happens isn't my wheelhouse. And I would be doing myself, you and your audience a disservice to try sure. to sort that. It's not even like a, a you know point of speculation from, um, you know. It just seems odd experience. to me that all these actors are sort of on the same page about the Ukraine thing. Uh, it doesn't seem like a coincidence to me. I don't have an explanation myself. I just didn't know if you had any thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I mean, again, I think that um, there's certainly something with the shifting of alliances and the positioning for that in the in the global future. One of the challenges we face, which is not in the book, but in a recent piece that I've, I've done, um, is that you know our alliance as 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 the United States, our partners are really really weak. I call them the the kids in the group project. You know, where we're the ones yeah. that do all the work, yeah. and they're the ones who just like hang around for the A, and and they're very much also paper tigers. And if you look at you know, what they've done in terms of their energy policy and the fact that they're not energy independent, don't have the resources to even turn that around, um, their aging demographics, you know, their money printing, because the ECB's done quite a lot, as has the Bank of Japan. It's not just the, you know, United States um, and the Fed. They're not really going to be strong allies. They're not positioned for strength going forward. These are not, you know, really exciting growth, you know, empires, so to speak, they're on the decline. So as you have the world reshifting and you have the BRICS plus sort of emerging, um, it's it's really concerning too. not just what's happening in the United States, but the people that we have partnerships with. And ultimately, they may have to leave the alliance because of their energy dependence and you know the the cost of the dollar and all those kinds of things so i don't think it really positions us for strength um in that you know new scenario either how does esg and dei as or die as jordan peterson likes to refer to <laughs> play into this because it, it, if you look at those policies just from just as a layman from a rational perspective yeah. i'm just a small business owner i'm not an expert in business i have no nba I'm not a macro guy, but just looking at these policies on, on the face, yeah. they seem very irrational, right? Things like equity, equality of outcome seem impossible without compromising individual rights, for example. Uh, whenever we've seen an uh, equality of outcome in the past, it's usually meant everyone's equally poor, not right. equally <laughs> prosperous, right? And so do they are they just fooled by the idealism or do these policies are they sort of used as almost like a propaganda tool uh yeah. to, to push an agenda tell me a little bit about what the real motive is behind them yeah so that's part of the the case that i make um in general about you know good ideas and bad outcomes because i think in principle you know these are things that we all agree with you know environment we all want to be good stewards of the planet we don't want to see it right. you know go up in a ball of flames pretty much everyone agrees to that um, diversity is a wonderful thing. People who have diverse inputs and diverse experiences add a lot of context to businesses and other outcomes. 
having strong governance is a, is a good thing for company. Like nobody disagrees with this. But the idea that some group of people get to codify what it means and hilariously, their codification is vague so that they can shift and change what it means depending on their whim. Um, you know, the Ukraine example is a great one where at one point in time, weapons were anti-ESG, was very bad for your ESG score to be related to weapons. But now we need to, you know, arm Ukraine. So we should probably ship that and say that's a good thing. So we can direct capital in that way. It changes with the whim. And the question is, who gets to decide? And particularly in companies where this concept of stakeholder is nonsense. It's, they aren't stakeholders. They have no stake in the business, that the stakeholders are the shareholders, the people who have ownership, as well as the employees and the customers. And that's what companies should be focused on, not some outside group that is using the equivalent of business social credit in order to bully them, in order to you know say, if you want to get capital and you want to be successful, you have to fall in line with whatever it is that we say at this point in time. And we have self-appointed us you know, the arbiters of what's right, what's good, what's moral for your business that we know nothing about and that we actually don't have a stake in. Or even if we do have a stake, you know, there are other stakeholders that need to be considered as well. And so that's, you know, a very concerning piece of this. The other problem with ESG is that it's also in many cases, so it's, you've got the business social credit piece, and then there's sort of the scam piece of it. There are all of these companies and funds that are slapping ESG labels on things to extract more fees. So this started you know, very heavily in the financial services industry. BlackRock, which is the largest asset manager in the world who has very deep ties to the WEF and who has been sort of uh, kind of at the center of forcing this basically on the business community in the U.S. because they do have access, not their own money, to other people's money that they're leveraging and using to hold these companies, in my opinion, hostage. Um, you know, a lot of that is slapping labels on things and saying, oh, well, this is ESG. And so we can charge a higher fee than something that's just your, your plain vanilla uh, fund. And you see it across the board. If you go and you look at at, uh, and I have an example in the book, you know, some of these funds, you'll look at them and you'll like, well, why is this not just like a big cap fund? <laughs> like, what is it about this that makes it ESG? And then you had one of the rating agencies drop Tesla from their ESG index, in, and but they have ExxonMobil, not because the company isn't you know, environmentally sound, but they don't like what Elon Musk has been saying and doing and his defense of free speech. So that, again, is business social credit. We're going to punish you because you're not falling in line. You have wrong think, and we're going to use that, and we're going to hold your company and all of its shareholders hostage because you're not falling in line. And so it's very, very scary. And you know, kind of layered on top of that is you have the Biden administration, um, you know, they have come out with a rule that now says that fund managers don't have to do their fiduciary duty, do not have to keep your financial interest at heart when they make choices in managing retirement funds, that they Ooh. can prioritize ESG over what you're doing. So if we tie that back to you will own nothing, 
right? You have the capital allocation that could be killing not only your business, but you know resources like energy that we need to flourish, traditional energy sources. And then we have the decisions that are made to increase your wealth that you know, you've earned and allocated to retirement funds. And they're going to say, no, we're going to prioritize something else for our benefits. They're going to leverage your the, assets for political gain rather right, than responsibility. Than exactly. So it's, it's really frightening. And the scariest part is that so many people who are involved with this have never heard of the WEF, don't know where ESG was started and how it came about, and are just running around doing everything they can to protect it because they're profiting from it. So it's it's a frightening thing. Now, we do have some pushback from some of the states, which is encouraging, but this is a, just one of many big battles that we have to fight. Yeah, that brings me to my, my next question. What are we supposed to do about this? I mean, it seems like <laughs> Mordor is, is accumulating yeah. masses of armies, right? <laughs> so so what can we do fighting these on these three fronts to prevent this from manifesting in the outcome of yeah. inevitable <laughs> tragedy? <laughs> Yeah, so that the, one of the things that I that I want to point out about the book is that it's meant to empower you to know where all of these challenges are coming from, and then it's meant to give you a plan to fight back. Because if you don't know all of the different areas that you need to be looking at, it's hard to create and affect that plan. But it's not meant to be a, a hopeless scenario. Um, we individually cannot stop financial orders from happening. Like it's going to happen. History mm. dictates that it happens. The U.S. will not be at the global of the financial universe for all of time. What we can do is hopefully slow it down and maybe massively slow it down. And what we can also do is put ourselves in a position that if things do shift and usually there's a period of chaos that happens as one sort of financial order is going away and another one is coming to bear, that we can put ourselves in the best position from both a behavioral standpoint and a financial standpoint to be able to push back. And obviously the specific way you do that is going to be different depending on where the threat's coming from. And I've you know laid out lots and lots of different areas that you need to be thinking about. But let's take something that we haven't really talked about, um, the CBDC, a central bank digital currency, which is where the government is trying, along with the Fed, to completely consolidate the power and ownership over your money, so much so where they can track it. So imagine you have a dollar bill that has a microchip in it. And Chase, you go to your favorite burger place and you go and you want to buy a burger and you're going to pay for it. And they say, oh, sorry, we've scanned the microchip and the government said you've had too many burgers this month and burgers are bad for the environment. So we're just going to cut it off completely. Well, you need to be thinking in that particular scenario, if the government is going to continue to consolidate money about mediums of exchange, things that you can use to exchange and and get the goods and services you need that may be outside of this system, as well as stores of value. Because as you know, you correctly identified, you have this debasement of the currency. And if they have a CBDC, um, it's going to be even worse because they're probably going to say, well, you know, instead of, of, of having this dollar, I'm going to give you four digital dollars. Wouldn't that be great? Most people don't have the financial wherewithal to understand that all that does is just you know, debase the pricing of each individual uh, digital dollar. So they're going to be like, oh, it's great. I'm going to get four. I'm going to be a millionaire. Um, so you know, I think you need to be thinking about something like that. So that may be where taking more of your money over time, 
putting it into things like precious metals. Some people think, you know, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin fits that bill. It's not sort of my area of expertise, but certainly worth exploring if it's in your area of expertise. Um, hard Other hard assets like productive land, things that are going to, you know, allow you to have that store of value. And then for mediums of exchange, you know, what are you going to be able to barter? What are you going to be able to use, whether it's smaller amounts of gold and silver um, you know, or Bitcoin or uh, product, uh, maybe it's like um, guns, ammo, baby sure. formula, whatever it is that you can use to barter during a period that if they try to, to shut down um, your financial access, that you and your community still have the ability to get the goods and services that you need. What's alarming to me about the CBDC conversation, among other things, is it really feels like a precursor to rationing. Sure. I think that's a, yeah, that's a really good insight. Think about the time we're in now where we have inflation, right? And so the Fed is using its tools to try to fight inflation, which we could go into a whole story about why that doesn't make any sense, but we'll just run, we'll just, we'll just accept that for now. Now imagine their new tool is that they have access to everybody's money. Say, so well, we're going to shut down inflation. You, we do that by controlling spending. So we're just going to limit access to everybody's money. And we're just not going to let you spend. And they just shut it down because they need to control inflation. And that, in effect, right, creates a rationing situation um, because, you know, there's only so many dollars to go around. Or, as you know, obviously, rationing can come in other directions. But it is that centralized control that lets them do things that are very nefarious. And while five or 10 years ago, I might've said, well, you know, that could happen, but it's probably not likely. Having lived through the COVID area and seen you know, the things that were done that were against your individual rights and non-constitutional, um, it's not much of a leap to think that even if it starts somewhere else, that that's eventually where it, it ends up, that the, the temptation to have that power of control and to pull those levers are too great. And so certainly I think that, you know, UBI, um, you know, devaluing the currency by bribing people to get in, being able to control inflation, um, you know, all these things that they shouldn't have central planning control over and takes us very far away from the individual liberties, let alone the the wealth creation opportunities that we have uh, are very realistic. I'm concerned in the context of my limited understanding of history that I can't think of an extended period of time in which corruption like this and power con conglomeration like this was peacefully reversed yeah i mean it just seems like the only outcome of this is ex extreme conditions and then violence and, and I, I don't mean like next year or maybe next year but i mean like over the next 100 yeah. years or 150 years yeah like, i mean go ahead i, I don't know that's, all, that's, that's it i mean are we just like doomed to come to like well, a revolutionary standard <laughs> like what, what, I, what i'll tell you is that not every war brings about a new financial world order, but every new financial world order in modern times has been preceded by war. And right. the reality is, and I think this is exactly what you were homing in on, is that the people who have the power and control aren't going to give that up. 
And so if things are going to shift, there needs to be a catalyst and there needs to be a cover, you know, whether it, it's, you know, from a revolutionary standpoint, whether it's, hey, we need this in order to reset this because the debt situation on a global basis has gotten out of control, you know, whether it's China taking advantage of, um, you know, just kind of the, the, the shifting situation and the weakness in the G7, there are all different ways that could come about. But I think that is a very realistic consideration as a mark for a shift in the new financial world order, just based on history rhyming, because it gives, you know, an opportunity, gives several opportunities, right? It gives this, this chaos period and people saying, do something. It gives a cover for these countries to come together and iron out a new plan. And, uh, you know, it's it's a challenging situation, but you know, that's the the reality of how it's worked before. So I think it's possible, um, you know, being in this technological age that we're in now, it's possible that maybe that doesn't happen. And it is something that relates to this digitization. That's the catalyst. But it's much easier when you have the war. And oh, and by the way, you also then after the war have the rebuilding period, which creates unfortunately, prosperity for those who are doing the the rebuilding. So right. um, I, I think it's, you know, not a guarantee, but it's certainly something that should be considered along the way and something that people should think about, you know, as you prepare, hey, this is probably not like the likely outcome that's going to necessarily happen. But what do we do in this scenario? What do we do in this scenario? And having that diversification of assets, having things that you can control and, and kind of having pre-thought about this will help you because when it happens, it's going to be a big shock to a lot of people. And if you've already gone through that process and gone and kind of gotten through it and thinking about the next steps, it's going to let you kind of move more quickly. It's going to put you in the pole position and, um, you know, help to prepare you and, and hopefully preserve some of the, the hard-earned wealth that you've created for your family and, you know, in that particular case, um, you know, it could be a matter of life and death. This next question I want to ask you maybe beyond the scope of your research, uh, but I was very intrigued to listen to the episode of Joe Rogan's podcast where he had guest Peter Zihan on. And I'm not sure if you took the time to watch that or if you've studied any of his work, but he basically made the claim that China's doomed in the next 10 to 20 years because their population uh, is aging so rapidly. Does that play into this at all? Do you think he's right? Is China a threat? Are they more threatening if they're vulnerable like that? What do you What are your thoughts on his interpretation of the out, of the outcome over the next twenty years? Yeah, so I actually addressed this a little bit in the War on Small Business, which is the book I did uh, previous to this that we talked yeah, great about. Great book, by the way. Everybody should oh, read it. Thank you. I did. I did read that one. <laughs> um, and so I do, there. There are a lot of people who think that China is, you know, the great superpower and the great threat and that everyone's going to rush into their currency, which, you know, for me, it's kind of hard to believe that people want the currency of a communist country. Um, it, you know, as, as much as you don't trust what the U.S. does, you would have right. even less trust for China. Part of the reason why they're offering um, some gold settlements in some of the trading that they're doing outside of dollars right now. But yes, you know, I, the people who I, I don't... China's got a big problem and it's also very self-imposed um, and it, it it does relate to their demographics and the fact that they have all these people who are retiring and then you have all of these 
younger people who are mostly male because of the one China policy and right. don't have mates. And, you know, their financial trajectory is a really, really bad one. I think that's part of why they have done their Belt and Road Initiative. I'm not sure if that's something that you're familiar with. But basically, the Belt and Road is where China is making investments in all different kinds of countries and particularly emerging areas around the world. And, you know, it's supposed to be to create this cooperation and whatnot. But we've seen in places like Africa where you know, they they go in and they maybe build an airport or build a, a port and some infrastructure, and then the country can't pay. And guess who takes it over? China. So they're certainly aware that it's an issue. And I think that makes them more explosive and vulnerable right. to try to, to lash out and to try to conquer while they can. It also makes them very vulnerable to an internal revolution, because when you have a lot of young men who don't have um, partners and, and, you know, for life, that's never been a really great thing either. So I do think that they're incredibly troubled. And so the question is, does that mean that they fizzle out or does that mean that they also lash out in their last ditch effort to you know try to control things and create a mess in their wake that we have to get through either way i i do kind of you know think it's hard for them at least in any sort of realistic period of time to be the sole superpower of the world um but certainly not impossible um but i think that's one of the things that we need to really take away here is when we go back and we study these other financial, you know, global leaders, the people who are in the, the pole position in the global economy, the head of the financial world order, as they were on the decline, there was already always that sort of next air getting ready to step in and take their place. As the Dutch, you know, were imploding, London was emerging as a financial center, um, as by the way, was, uh, was France. So it was kind of between the two of them, and ultimately, you know, based on some wars and things like that, uh, you know, the British ultimately won out. And then they had this period of prosperity and the Industrial Revolution, whatnot. And they were also obviously a big protector of um, property rights. You know, that's something that really kind of sure. came from them originally. Yeah. And then as they kind of went on the decline, then you had the United States that had emerged as sort of the global center of the universe. And so it was very kind of easy to say, OK, well, that was going to be the next place. The challenge that we're faced with as we we look at us in the late innings and one of the things we never know is duration. You know, this could happen in three months, but it could happen in 30, 50, 100 years. We don't know. We just see that we're we're late innings somewhere. But there is no sort of obvious air. There's no bastion of freedom and capitalism and protection. Yeah, of property there's no rights. further there's, west to go. Right. Yeah. There's there's no there's no like great person to step in here. That the places that are emerging as power centers are even more tyrannical and dictatorial than the United States is trending right now. So that not only sets up a really scary scenario, but should give everybody the fortitude to say, we got to work really hard to turn this around and to save America, because it's not just for your own selfish benefit, but really for the, the benefit of the globe, not turning into a really dark period of history, because the next set of, of potential heirs 
look really frightening. This is not a, a new hope for tomorrow. So that should give people hopefully a little bit more of a push to get informed and empower themselves and to really you know, put work into preserving what we can for as long as we can. So where can people find you and follow you as well as pre-order a copy of your new book? So I spend most of my time on Twitter, although people never see my tweets anymore. That's one of the sad things. The, algor the algorithm needs to be killed. and, and re, uh, re But if you hit notifications, I think that works um, at Carol J.S. Roth. And then the book, You Will Own Nothing. You can pre-order it now wherever you get your books. I tell people Amazon's great for rankings. Bookshop.org is great to support small businesses. You know, if you can buy it from a, a local bookstore in your community, that's great. But whatever it is to, to get it to you, this is a really important read to empower yourself with knowledge, to help you be able to explain these concepts to other people who are going, no, that's, you know, that's a conspiracy theory. And then to have this plan to fight back. And I want people to take action because the global elite may want you to own nothing, but I want you to own everything. And you should want that for yourself as well. Well, it's always an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. As I hope you know by now, you're always welcome on this podcast. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and my audience today about your new book. I'll certainly be purchasing a copy to support Appreciate you, even it. though you already sent me a digital copy. <laughs> and, uh, I'm looking Appreciate forward to reading it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Chase. Absolutely. Take care.